This is the Doctor Who Podcast, and you are most welcome. To another episode of the Doctor Who podcast, episode 295 for those of you that are keeping count. And with me this week, I have Phil. Surprise, surprise. Phil, you've always been with me these uh, last few episodes. Oh, hello. have a night. Yes, hello. Hello, everybody at home. It's wonderful that you're still sticking around. And, uh, <laughs> the contingency, just in case Phil had cancelled, is Ian. Hello, Ian. Welcome back to the podcast. Good afternoon. Or morning, or evening, or wherever people happen to be when they listen to this. Isn't that from the, uh, what's that called? The Truman Show, that's it. Uh, I couldn't tell you. It's been more years than I care to think of since I last saw The Truman Show, so I don't know. <laughs> if it makes me sound windswept and interesting, then yes, it absolutely was. <laughs> <laughs> I must tell you, listeners, I think whenever the three of us or any of us on the podcast get together now, there are so many conversations that start. Do you remember that? Oh, I can't quite remember what it's called. You know, it was years ago. It was this, and it reminded me of something else I can't remember. And, uh, yeah, I think you get to the point in life where something reminds you of something else that you've forgotten, and I think that basically is the Doctor Who podcast now. Join a bunch of doddery old blokes as they try and remember stuff about Doctor Who. What are we here for again? <laughs> Like a gentleman's rest home. <laughs> I like the idea of a Doctor Who rest home. I think that would be great. <laughs> anyway, what's been going on since we've been recording last time? I suppose we have had well, a few things that resemble news, haven't we? I suppose so, actually, yes. I suppose that the, the one that caught everyone out was the the recent announcement of the Faceless Ones is coming to Blu-ray in animated form. Mm, yeah. Mm. Um, I was a little surprised at the timing of the announcement. I didn't expect anything to be announced for, for some time because, of course, you know, there's no real obligation uh, for the team to announce this so far ahead of release. But um, I'm, I'm pleased they did. One, because it filled the void. Yes. Apart from the Blu-ray releases that I think we're getting an announcement once every six weeks to two months, perhaps. We don't really get anything at all on a classic series anymore. So it is nice to go back to the black and white era occasionally. But um, what, what, what did you two think about the choice of uh, story to animate? Well, um, I mean, first, in terms of the timing, I'm wondering if this is an indication that the Macro Terror has done quite well. Because if there's a buzz out there about that one, it would make sense to try and pique people's interest straight away off the back of that. So, fingers crossed, this means that's been quite successful, which is good news for the future range. Faceless Ones is a story I know next to nothing about at all. I, I never really got much into the missing episodes. I didn't do the sort of telesnaps, reconstruction type stuff. So unless I happen to have uh, read the Target book, and I, I'm pretty sure I never read this one, 
I don't know those stories all that well. So this is going to be quite a treat for me because I think I'm going to come to it completely cold, even more cold than I did the Macro Terra because I, I knew bits about the Macro Terra. I know nothing really at all about the faceless ones other than a plane is involved and some people may have uh, less than the requisite number of faces. I'm completely aligned with Ian on this one because uh, I know absolutely nothing about the faceless ones. I've never been into the whole reconstruction, tele-snap, things you can find on YouTube and... Yeah, and so again, this will be completely new to me, pretty much like the Macro Terra was. Uh, mm. But the the only thing I've, I find strange is they've chosen to animate all six episodes rather than <laughs> you know animate yeah. the missing four and release uh, as with the with the two complete episodes that that, uh, that exist, uh, which I'm assuming will just be there as extras. Uh, yeah, um, yeah. I, the, the thing that was slightly more surprising was that the release, the news release or the press release didn't address this issue. It just contained the fact that they were animating all six. Didn't say mm. because it wasn't any more expensive to do six than it was to do four. But I um, I, I do remember uh, the faceless ones. Um, I, I used to really get into the target novelizations and uh, any kind of tele-snap or reconstruction that was going um, and the quality varied considerably but certainly um from years ago dwm used to do the tele snaps uh, as a regular feature and i i used to absolutely lap that feature up as and when the bbc released the soundtracks that were narrated so essentially i'll put the cd on listen to the soundtrack and follow the story via the tele snaps and i remember doing that with the romans uh, was it the romans no not the romans it's a story with ian dressed as a roman um it was the Lion. So, what was that? That was oh goodness. Here we go again. Crusade. Um, <laughs> Crusade. Thank you. Yes, that was uh, that was <laughs> well done, where they Ian. released. Yeah, well done. Very good. This is it. This is just more like a game show. No, James forgets something, and who can figure out what he's trying to say? <laughs> <laughs> but uh, but I, I used to love certainly those those um, uh, reconstructions and telesnaps and the faceless ones for me was a good story. I remember that more than anything else. I enjoyed this very much. And uh, it was set at an airport, and I have a passing interest in avionics, airports, planes as well. So it it keyed into my brain on a a, a couple of levels. I'm not sure whether or not it is such an indication of whether the Macra Terra has done well. I sincerely hope you're correct, but I'm just thinking it might be a little bit too soon to judge that a success, and therefore let's let's commission a new one. But I very much hope you're right, because if that is the case, then it would certainly imply that the range is secure. I, I wonder if the choice to do full animation is off the back of audience research, whether they're finding that maybe new Who fans that access this stuff actually prefer the animation to the old episodes, because the old episodes can be quite challenging to a modern audience. So possibly they've uh, had done a bit of research and they get more, more, more engagement if they go full animation and i'm sure there'll be a branching option where you can watch it it'd be daft not to so i'm sure that'll be on the disc i'd be very disappointed if there wasn't um but i have to say again it's probably the age i certainly don't understand the thinking behind that if what you've just said is correct uh because that presumably implies they're just going to go ahead and animate the whole of the uh, classic range because it's easier than watching the original the original footage, but um, I, I've I found some of the animations extremely difficult to to get through, and uh, I, I would vastly vastly prefer to watch the the episodes if they exist. And there's there's very little chance I think of me watching the animated versions of episodes that actually exist in their original form. Yeah, but if that is what's going on, I'm pretty sure you're not the target audience for that. In fact, none of us probably are. 
Yeah, I'm not quite sure what we are a target audience for in the <laughs> I don't think there's anything that's aimed at us anymore. Maybe, maybe with the exception of the Blu-rays, um, of which we now know The Trial of a Time Lord Season 23 is going to be released in September. Yes. Do you think that's an, an obvious choice if, you, if you're going to pick Colin Baker? Or maybe his first season? Well, again, it's the same kind of thing, isn't it, as the DVDs? When do you release the ones that aren't particularly popular with the fan base? You can't really just release all of the ones that you know are going to go, and then you're left with season 23, pretty much all of Sylvester McCoy's era, possibly the black and white eras as well. So whilst I, I don't think this was crying out for release... I think there's a lot of surviving cast and crew willing to do new features. So I think there's 10 hours worth of extra stuff on here, which is almost as much as the actual source content. Um, (laughs) And, uh, of course, you've got that on top of... uh, Well, I say on top of. I think it's combined with the existing features that were on the DVD release. But I know what you mean, Phil. But personally, I don't really care which season gets released. Hopefully they all will at some point. And yeah, it, I, it, I quite like this one anyway. I have well, to say. It's, it's funny, actually, because they made a, a very brief announcement of, um, about this at the recent BFI event for Planet of the Daleks. All right. um, and they said that there would be an announcement on the following Tuesday about the next Blu-ray release. <laughs> they, they weren't allowed to say what it was. Everyone was speculating. I did actually say Trial of the Time Lord, and um, Adam, who was with me, said, oh, no, I don't think it will be that. Um, and I, uh-huh. unfortunately, I've been proven right. So, I'd, I'd heard rumours that it was trial for some time, but absolutely um, nothing official whatsoever. I think um, they do drop hints on their Twitter feed sometimes, the guys that are involved in this, not always on, on purpose. But I, I think what you said, literally, right, right at the beginning of that um, last set of comments, you said they announced at an event that there was going to be an announcement. Yes, <laughs> on I know. That is the sign of the times we're in now. I tell you, they're going to actually announce when something is going to be announced. It's absolutely crazy. I have to say, when I, when I saw the announcement coming out, I think I saw it on Facebook first, my heart was like, ugh. It, I mean, <laughs> C- C- Colin is my least favourite doctor for various reasons. And of the two seasons he did, this is my least favourite of his seasons. So <laughs> it, it's... Oh, there's, there's very little to like in that whole season you know if you think of some you know modern fan that you're trying to get into the i mean we, we're always assuming that they're trying to get the modern fans in uh because um i'm guessing that us old fans will probably buy it anyway so if they want to make more money they're the only ones they can go to are the modern fans oh, um I, i'm, I'm not sure i would try and introduce modern fans to uh six via this season i mean not the, the previous one's much better but you've got some some quite gritty stories in there like vengeance on varus or Revelation of the Daleks, which I think are head and shoulders better than anything in in the Trials season. I think if I was to introduce any any sort of new fan to the Sixth Doctor, I'd probably steer them away from his television output and go straight to Big Finish. Well, yeah, I, I would agree yeah. entirely. Yeah, I, I I don't think the new fans or fans that have come to the franchise through post two thousand and five Doctor Who are necessarily the target audience. I think the Blu-ray range is a bit like... uh, You know when you subscribe to something, if if you happen to be um, 
uh, a business uh, you want regular money coming in through subscribers big finish do it all the time they say subscribers are their lifeblood i just think the blu-ray range is essentially considered as guaranteed income because fans will buy it again even though they've got it five times already in various formats and i don't think that's a problem necessarily i think it all goes back into the show it's not as if it's going into anyone's pockets and uh, i don't think there's any other tv show of its era or ilk uh, that gets so much love and attention so long after it originally transmitted yeah i totally agree the 10th anniversary of the screen on television at the end of time <laughs> uh, yes and there's going to be a special cinema screening in only u.s cinemas by phantom or fathom events i should not phantom events fathom events um do you think this is warranted because it's not that i would say very well regarded certainly not by me I don't think I've heard a positive review of The End of Time from anyone, regardless of whether it, they're based in the States or, or this country or anywhere else, to be honest with you. There's one person, actually, and that's Chip, who I know will stand up and argue its uh, its merits. Um, and, and there are some good points in it, but frankly, there are some good points in absolutely every single Doctor Who show <laughs> ever produced. Um, first of all, I will say, regardless of the actual story that they're showing... I'm extremely envious that American audience and American fans get an opportunity to go into a cinema and watch a David Tennant story again. I think that's brilliant. I really do think that's brilliant. And it, does it say in the release, Phil, whether or not it's just part one or parts one and two? Because I, I've not seen any detail. No, on me neither. I'm, I'm assuming they've got to show both parts. What would be the point of only showing part one? Well, it's, it's quite long, isn't it? it I mean, is, both of them yeah. are well over the hour mark, and you know that's a long time to dedicate a cinema to or cinema space to. I would have thought. Well, hmm. If they show it back to back, it's not that much longer than a, a movie. So uh, there's plenty of films out there that are two and a half, three hours long these days. So no, I, I, I would be amazed if they don't show both parts. That would just be hmm. peculiar. Just the absence of detail from press releases again. I'm a little surprised yeah. at, but uh, yeah. but yeah, but I, I think the whole idea of getting Doctor Who out there and and just just for it to be available to the not we, you know, like cinemas, you know, everybody goes to cinemas, not just fans, and uh, it's not like an exclusive retro cinema like the BFI, which focuses on on the film industry and particular parts of it. It's it, it it's the place for something like Doctor Who to be celebrated, but this is going into regular cinemas, you know, across the states, and I, I think that's a wonderful, wonderful thing. And I think we I think back to when we talked about Logopolis at the BFI not long ago, a story which I have no great affection for, but I still enjoy watching it in the BFI in the cinema with surrounded by loads of other people. Uh, and I of think course. almost any story is more fun to watch with a group of people and to be fair to end of time it it, it rolls along at a decent clip and there's some fun and entertaining bits in it i remember actually enjoying it on broadcast when you go back and look at it with any kind of critical eye the whole thing's nonsense and it all falls apart but actually as an as an experience in the moment it's not that bad Uh, there are much Mm. worse stories logopolis for one um and (laughs) uh, i think having that kind of you know fun sort of action-y type story in a whole group of fans, probably with a bit of cheering and clapping and that kind of stuff. I I can actually see that being quite a fun event. 
There's also going to be a brand new interview with David Tennant, so I, I would imagine that will crop up on YouTube or somewhere. I mean, it's almost inconceivable, isn't it, that the US audience would get something that the UK fan base wouldn't have seen before? <laughs> That's never happened Ooh, before, don't, 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 stop, don't stop that discussion again. <laughs> <laughs> it's San Diego Comic Con all over it. I'm, I'm sure they'll find a Blu-ray release to make it exclusive so they can get you to triple dip on the disc. Oh, well, no, that would be good. Do you think they will ever release? Presumably, uh, at some point, they will, re- re- they will re-release all of the new stuff as well. So, um, Because, again, it's why, why wouldn't they? They've done it for the classic stuff. They probably will for the modern stuff. So there we are. Maybe the special edition of The End of Time is something we can all look forward to. You know what? I'll probably buy it when it comes out. <laughs> <laughs> Right, now further to what we were saying a moment ago about uh, introducing new fans to The Sixth Doctor via the medium of Big Finish. Well, coming up right now, we've got Drew and Michelle. We're going to talk about a a Sixth Doctor story from Big Finish, actually. It's the Juggernaut, so um, over to them. Mel and The Sixth Doctor get separated. While Mel spends several months on a strange planetoid working on a mysterious project, the Doctor is working for... the Daleks? Not only that, Mel's benefactor is Davros. Wait, what? Dalek agents reported unusual developments on the fringe planet of Lethe. Investigations led us to discover that Davros had integrated himself into a small human mining colony. Tell me more. We know little of his activities, which is why you will infiltrate the colony, investigate Davros, and report back to us. We will then decide on the subsequent course of action. And once you're in the know about Davros's latest bit of nastiness, will Mel and I be free to leave? Agreed. And yet I don't believe it for a moment. Yes, dear listeners, all that and more happens in the play that we're going to get a chance to review today, which is The Juggernauts written by Scott Allen Woodard, an American writer of all things, back in 2005. And uh, I think the idea of listening to the Juggernauts was partly to see if we could find a Dalek audio that Drew would like. <laughs> have, we su- have we succeeded? Well, so I'm two of two minds with this. See, obviously, uh, James has made this suggestion because he really, he must like this, right? This is, this is what he would throw at me. And if I say yes, we don't have to listen to uh, any more Dalek audios. But if I say no, he's probably going to throw another Dalek audio. So I'm going to say this. Uh. Yes, I liked it. I didn't <laughs> love it, but I liked it. Okay, okay. Elaborate a little on that. So here's my thought on this. I, I was thinking if I was to present a paper on the Juggernauts, it would essentially be called the Juggernauts. And my thesis would be <laughs> this would be a lot more impressive prior to 2005. So this came out in February of 2005, so one month before the new series launched. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm, This is mm -hmm. a very good classic Doctor Who story. Mm. In fact, if they had filmed this one, this might be one of the best six Doctor Doctor Who stories. Now, that depends on your feelings about Colin Baker's Mm. Doctor and the stories Mm. and the relationships that are happening. uh, Because it's happening post-Trial of a Time Lord. Or, wait, no. Pre, 
Pryle. Anyway, it's a Six Doctor and Melanie Bush story, so it could happen sometime after the second parts of the Trial of the Time Lord. Um, mm-hmm, that mm-hmm. being said, we get some really interesting stuff with Davros, which, mm-hmm. hmm, how to best to put this. In 2005, I think this story was fairly revelatory. This feels a little bit like The Magician's Apprentice and The Witch's Familiar, in that Davros is trying to come across in a certain way, whether or not that is that is uh, legitimate on his part remains to be seen. But having, yeah, I mean he 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 is he is masquerading as a legitimate scientist who actually hires Mel, um, and and there are ways in which. Davros does this so that folks don't recognize him for who he is. But yes, there's there's this nice, uh, and, it, and it's early in the piece, you get this extended look at Mel without the Doctor, because she is stranded on this space colony for 72 days before, uh, in her timeline, the Doctor shows up, which I thought was a neat, a neat premise. It was nice to see what would happen when she was... Uh, kind of finding her own way and finding her own life, hoping the Doctor would eventually return. How's it going? Oh, all right. I'm having some trouble reconfiguring the multitask routines, but I'm almost there. And how about in terms a lowly server mechanic might understand? It won't go. Gotcha. You have to remember, Jeff, that up until a few months ago, the only computer languages I was adept in were basic COBOL and Fortran. And you used to work out your sums with an abacus, right? Very funny. Well, the prof is certainly pleased with your work. And I don't think we'd be where we are now without you. Thanks. I appreciate that. I think we're almost ready, Mel. All right, Sonali. Just let me upload my revisions. It'll only take a second. Everything all right, Melanie? Yes, all finished, Professor. It should be good to go. Good. The moment of truth. Uh, Sonali, if you'd be so kind as to switch it on. One. I thought, as far as Mel was concerned, this is possibly the best Mel story I've listened to or or seen. Uh, she has agency. She actually uses her computer savvy very cleverly. I really enjoyed her uh, in this story. You know, you know that's true. And I have a hunch that for Mel, like for the Sixth Doctor, um, the audios may have been a very good venue for her to ex- expand that character. Well, one of the interesting things, um, without giving too much away, Mel in this story, um, kind of her goody two-shoes persona slips a little bit. She has to make a very dark choice at one point, which I thought was an interesting thing to explore with this character. Did you did you like that? Was it was that helpful in fleshing out the character for you? I think so. Yeah, um, because we don't get much of Mel in the classic series as uh, as far as television is concerned. And I haven't. I think this is probably only the second Mel story I've heard in Big Finish. So I'm not familiar with what they've chosen to which direction to take that character because it's a character that never really got a chance to breathe on on mm-hmm. the TV show. Not with the Sixth Doctor. Sorry, the relationship with the Sixth Doctor and Mel never really got a chance to be expanded upon. And so yeah, I liked that. I thought it was it was well done. It was very clever. I think Woodard got a feel of what Mel probably could have been and ran with it. And I think mm-hmm, the mm-hmm. the Sixth Doctor, who again love Colin Baker in the Big Finish, it is a good Sixth Doctor story, or at least it's a mm-hmm. it's a very mm-hmm. competent Sixth Doctor story. Mm-hmm. However, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> however, however. Uh, it's very much a classic story. So uh, there, I feel like there's a lot of padding in this one. There's a lot of running through corridors. 
Uh, I think it could be streamlined. And this is one of those things where prior to the 2005 series, um, this is a this is again a really good classic story. Having heard the pacing of modern Doctor Who and how it's changed Big Finish, I, I felt like not enough was happening for me. I, I thought it could have been condensed quite a bit. But voice actors did a great job. Sound quality really good. Yeah. So in, in 2005, I listened to this. I'm like, ah, Davros, really creepy. Uh, in 2019, I've hung out with Terry Malloy enough at conventions <laughs> that, for me, every time I hear Davros, I can't help but see Terry holding Monty, this little teddy bear, in his arms while saying this. And so I, I'm, I'm not afraid of Davros <laughs> anymore. For you know, me, it's you, just kind of like, oh, it's Terry. Aww. Oh, <laughs> You so know, I've, I've, heard, I've heard you should never meet your heroes. I did not realize you should never meet your villains. <laughs> Man. Yeah. Well, there you go, right? Because if what if I had ever been afraid or creeped out by him before, ain't happening now. Doctor, what is that? It looks suspiciously like blood. But what bleeds green? I do All Skyrosians do. Even the Daleks. You must be in tremendous pain. I fear nothing. My life support system has pumped my bloodstream full of anesthetic. I hear the blood trickling from my wounds, and I feel the tautness of my seared flesh. But there is no sensation of pain to speak of. Is there anything we can do? That is entirely up. Doctor. You know, you know when you and when you talk about the classic series. First off, I don't, I don't think I was bothered by the pacing at all on this. I didn't have that sense, but maybe I'm just more used to the pacing of these kind of stories. But certainly, in terms of classic Doctor, the the namesake creatures in this story are the Juggernauts, which are of course mechanoids, and that's not a spoiler because they're they're portrayed on the cover sure. uh, of the album, and actually they, they come in very early in the story, but you couldn't get, I think, more classic uh, in terms of a topic than going back to the mechanoids, um, which, which is interesting. For me, that is quite a chore to try and make the mechanoids work. They do have a beautiful voice. I mean, the mechanoid voice, which was uh, realized wonderfully uh, in in the audio, is fascinating to listen to, but it's very slow. Maybe that's where some of the pacing comes along. It takes a long time just to listen to a mechanoid say anything. But but I think where where that was challenging is that the mechanoids are so doggone big. And the premise was that Davros and his team, or the professor and his team, we're working to turn these things into these domestic service robots that, that uh, you know, we're going to make a, a fortune for their backers. And yet they're so big. I mean, and, and they do address it in the series. I mean, when, when, the, uh, when the funders come to, to see how the project is progressing, one of the very first things they say is, well, they're awfully big. I mean, I, can't, I don't even think they could get through a door. Um, so th- there is that. Um, and they are um, – and again, this isn't, isn't much of a spoil da- spoiler. Davlish is trying to – you know, find, create, enhance some creation that is going to rival the Daleks. Um, and and in the classic series, the mechanoids and the Daleks were pretty evenly matched in the chase, the one, the one story that they come into. I don't think we actually ever see which side comes out victorious in, in that battle. Uh, and yet, um, yeah, it's just kind of hard to, they're, they're just so big and unwieldy. <laughs> But they're adorable. They are. They are. Well, yeah, that's the thing. It's and, sort of like the quarks. I find the mechanoids to be adorable uh, and, and nice 
balance to the Daleks, which I do not find adorable. Though well. there is a set of <laughs> there's a couple of Daleks in this story that are less irritating to me. Ah, well, the Daleks have seen better days, at least the ones that are uh, on the space station. So, so, so there is that. Maybe that helps make them more equally matched. And I and I say that the the mechanoids are adorable. They are also at the same time horrific yeah. in this particular story. Um, and, and so that, that, that there's some talent to doing that. I, I, this is, I've listened to this before. In fact, I think Ian and I might even have reviewed this once before, um, for the original incarnation of the Doctor Who podcast. And I, I, I remember liking it then. I liked it this time as well, um, with just a, a couple minor quirks, but, but all in all, this is one that when James said, Hey, can you listen to that again? I was, I was perfectly happy to pull it out and, uh, stick it in my ears again. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I liked it quite a bit. I think audiences that listened to this in 2005 got some really cool stuff they hadn't received in Doctor Who before. And I think they're going to get a lot better response from listeners in 2005. Fourteen years later, uh, I'm just going to come out and say it. I think Jeff comes off as a bit of a creep. And, yeah, uh, that's true. Oh, there is. Yes, thank you for bringing that up. Yes, go ahead and talk more about that. You're absolutely, you are absolutely right in it, and it should be said. <laughs> I, I think Jeff is very cringeworthy. I, I, I think the way he's portrayed is you're supposed to be very sympathetic to him and things that happen in the story. But I kept on, I, I just, ooh, Jeff, dude. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Chill on the one hand, Jeff. Jeff Jeff is, a, is is actually in this a love interest um, for Mel um, of a sort of a, um, sort. a, poten- a, a potential love interest and in many ways he is meant to be um, sympathetic as, as you say and yet looking at the dialogue and looking at the pattern of what he's been how he's kind of been working his way through the women on the on the space station uh, we, we, that wouldn't fly today no. Uh, it should never have flown then, but uh, it, there is. You're right. Um, particularly looking at this um, in 2000. <laughs> uh, what are we in? 2019. Uh, yeah, I I would hope that it, that character wouldn't have been written that way. Yeah. Or at least if he was, that uh, Mel would never have gotten anywhere close to him. <laughs> the one other thing, I actually think the story, aside from what we've talked about, has aged pretty well and is and is a good listen. But um, the one other thing that that again, maybe it's just what our perspectives are now from from what they were in 2005. My little public service announcement is that um, there is a plot twist in this that kind of references organ donation in a very sinister and nefarious way. And, you know, I like to remember that this is fiction. um, And having, having actually spent a summer working in a hospital in real life last summer, um, I would hope that fiction would never discourage people from giving what is an incredible gift, um, you know, of, do- of donation. And so there's this part of me that when, when something like that comes up in a story, I think, oh, no, you know, my hope would be that we would be encouraging that, not scaring people away from it. But, um, again, maybe something that would have been written differently in 2019. Sure. So there you go. Uh, James, maybe that's enough for you to uh, throw some non-Dalek story at us uh, uh, next time. <laughs> and if not, I look forward to... I don't. I lie. I don't. Um, but <laughs> there you go. Well, uh, again, Michelle, thank you so much for for taking this time talking. Yes, true. It's been been good talking with you again. Take care. Mm-hmm. 
Thank you, Drew. Thank you, Michelle. <laughs> Ian, you got a name check there. This is uh, the second time the Doctor Who podcast has reviewed the Juggernauts. <laughs> I didn't remember that <laughs> until after I asked. Just sticking to the theme. Yeah, me and Michelle did this one. This is one of the very first stories we ever did together many, many years ago. I think we did this just about the same time that Asylum of the Daleks had come out. And I saw an awful lot of parallels between Asylum of the Daleks story and the Juggernauts. A lot of parallels. And actually, I think you and I bumped into the author of the Juggernauts, uh, Gallifrey. And I, I think I mentioned that and he kind of gave me a look that said it perhaps hadn't gone entirely unnoticed by him either. Yeah, that was uh, Scott Allen Woodard, and uh, I thoroughly recommend it. And I have a feeling it's not that expensive now on the Big Finish website either, because it was released such a long time ago. So now we're going to hear yet more from Phil, as if you haven't had enough, because you can never have too much Phil. But this time with <laughs> Drew and Stephen, and they're going to discuss cosplay. Drew, we've got another voice from the past of the DWP with us. It's Stephen Prescott. Welcome back. I'm very happy to be back. I miss you guys. Oh, well, it's, it's weird for me to say welcome back because I was never part of this podcast before. And <laughs> neither was I. <laughs> okay, but it's great to have you back, Stephen. It really is. Thank you. I'm, I'm excited to be back. And, and Phil, it's great having you as a part of the DWP. I'm so pleased to be part of it. I really am. When, uh, when James asked me, I was, I, was, I was ready for the call, is all I can say. But anyway, we are here to discuss cosplay. Stephen is a big cosplayer, uh, particularly in the world of uh, in the world of Doctor Who. Um, now, I've dabbled as well. I've got a couple of Who costumes. Drew, what about yourself? What's the level below dabbled? <laughs> hmm. Maybe sort of hmm, uh, casual. <laughs> yes, I feel like I have dipped a toe in the cosplaying world. Um, <laughs> For the 50th anniversary, I wanted to take part in this larger celebration. Uh, I I'd sort of recently joined fandom. I'd sort of recently joined podcasting. And I thought, well, what is everybody else doing? Oh, they're cosplaying. Fantastic. Uh, they had a single image of the War Doctor, uh, of uh, just sort of him walking down the street. It wasn't even really pose at this point in time. I'm like, yes, that. I'm going to try that. And so my, my wife and I were like, well, let's, let's figure out how to do that. And so I... I did, and I actually showed up for the 50th anniversary at, at one of my local coffee house slash movie theater slash television watching arenas, and everyone's like, who are you supposed to be? Because the 50th anniversary hadn't aired yet. <laughs> oh, okay. So, <laughs> so, what were, um, <laughs> so what were the kind of looks you were getting, Drew? I mean, anytime anyone comes in wearing a bandolier across their chest uh, and a leather jacket and boots with greaves... I mean, it's the kind of looks that you're going to get from people. Because I was maybe one of four or five people dressed up for this event. So everyone else was sort of, you know, muggles. They're just watching their thing to come in to watch the show, get a cup of coffee. Um, and everyone else was either 11th Doctors or 4th Doctors. So, uh, you know, random guy. I was also wearing, trying to make myself look older. So I had, like, whitened my hair and uh, had, like, fake wrinkles in my eyes. So, yeah, it was really, I think quite confusing for most people well it sounds like you gave it a really good go there though because it was your first attempt yeah yeah i mean even though i i was new to the fandom itself i hadn't been to a doctor who convention yet at that time uh, i had been plenty of uh local comic book and science fiction conventions and so the the cosplay arena there is very 
they're fervent. Like they they really get into it. And so I, I you know I thought I'd at least try an attempt. It was nothing compared to ninety percent of the people who were who I was familiar with as far as our cosplay was concerned. Stephen, you are what I describe as a seasoned cosplayer. <laughs> um, so just to sort of give a bit of a background, how did, how did you get into the whole Doctor Who cosplay? Because you've done various other sci-fi stuff as well. Yeah, well, um, Star Trek was my first real fandom, I'd say. Uh, mm-hmm. So when I, I used to go to Star Trek conventions when I was in my late teens, early 20s, and, and I remember dressing in costume for a couple of those conventions uh so i've always been into just the idea of of something feeling like uh it came off the set something that feels like authentic because i've always appreciated the sort of work that goes into costuming and and props and things like that so Mm -hmm. that's sort of where it started but I, I took a lot of years off from that and then uh doctor who came back and the Tenth Doctor's suit. I've always also been into fashion and clothes and dressing. It comes from my days of being, you know, front man for bands and things like that. So always oh, very wow. glammy. Um, <laughs> so uh, so the Tenth Doctor's suit being very sort of uh, modish, uh, modern, though, and things like that. I got really into it. So I really wanted that suit very badly. And so I spent a lot of time trying to replicate that suit and uh, looking for fabrics and things like that. And then it all just compounded from there. And uh, <laughs> fine. <laughs> you know, uh, I'm going to Gallifrey One and making friends there and, and uh, friends who were as obsessed as I was and uh, looking for original fabrics and cloths and things like that. And uh Going on trips to London and spending days just shopping through fabric stores on Berwick Street and, uh, in Soho and, and uh, looking for all of the, the places where the, the costume department would go and, and, and buy their supplies. And yeah, and that's kind of where it built out. And then I, and, and when Peter Capaldi came on the scene, I think I found really my signature doctor. I think that uh, I relate to uh, to the Twelfth Doctor and, and to Peter Capaldi himself in a lot of ways. We have very similar tastes in music and styles and aesthetics and things like that. And so I think that's where I really uh, came into my own. I remember you going to the same shop where Capaldi got his shirts from. Mm-hmm. Or as well, you made a, you made a kind of a pilgrimage there, didn't you? So, um, is authenticity key for you when you when you're cosplaying? Because you you see people throw things together, and you you can tell what it is and and who they're supposed to be. But for you, is it getting it absolutely spot on? Is is the key for you? Yeah, for me. Well, for Doctor Who, for me, yes. I, I think that. Yeah. You know, first of all, I just would say people should just have fun. That's all that matters. For me personally. It's about the authenticity, but that's just because I'm so anal retentive. Uh, <laughs> um, maybe I should cut that out. That's because I'm o- OCD about these things. Um, and and I really, like, there's something about quality. And the, the people who can make, uh, Chris Kerr, who has made coats for uh, Matt Smith, Peter Capaldi. Chris Kerr is, a, is an old school Soho London tailor. Um, he's been doing yeah. it. Uh, he, it's a generational thing. His father was a tailor. He's a tailor. And he's made all the coats um, for for Matt and Jody and, and, and Peter. And, uh, and there's something about a finely tailored piece of clothing that you put on something like that and it just feels amazing. And 
I got two coats from him last year, and uh, when they showed up and I put them on, it was just, it's an experience. I mean, they fit perfectly. They're so nice. The construction is wonderful. And so there's something about that for me that, that is really special. Uh, and then to know that um, there's a lineage there, uh, that it was made by the same people who made it for the show. So... Drew, as a, a once only person for, for cosplaying, do you is it something you thought I'd like to do that again or is it not really your bag? I mean I I'd like the experience. I think what I loved most about the experience was it's something that my wife this is not her world, neither the cosplay nor Doctor Who. I, I'd said, look, you know, I would be really interested in trying to dress up like this character of which we have a single image and and I can't sew. I uh, I don't. I don't think I've ever like just listening to what you have. I pilgrimage to the shop where they actually bought the original item. I've never committed that much to anything in my life. So <laughs> I, I said I'd love to try this, but what I want to do is I I, I really want to try this in the most backwards way possible. I want to see if I can find this stuff at like Goodwill stores, you know, thrift shops. I want to be able to hack these apart, try to piecemeal it together and just treat it in the same way I would an improv show you know like let's let's maybe do it mm. over the course of a week and see what we can throw together and that's what we did and, and we did it together like we would go to shops and go what is this fabric like and uh, I think we were like 90% of the way through the the costume when they released a promotional picture and we actually got to see the war doctor from like the knees down and like they had the greaves and, and the boots and I'm like, Oh, I don't have any of that stuff. But you know, there was like this excitement uh, for it. Would I try it again? Yeah, I might. Uh, I might. It, it depends. There'd have to be a character. I, I don't like crowds. Um, and I don't always like the attention being on me. Uh, I said, I've only tried this once and that is more or less true. I did take my War Doctor costume to the first Doctor Who convention that I ever went to, which was uh, the Long Island Who in New York, and I put it on, and I know it was a group of cosplayers. They're all going to take a big, like, the, the Doctor Who timeline, and I kind of, you know, walked to where everyone was meeting, and there was, like, five or six other War Doctors, and all of them had these really incredibly polished costumes, and I felt incredibly self-conscious. I went back to the hotel room, and I changed into my regular clothes. Um... But it wasn't one oh, wasn't on yeah. them, it was on me. I just felt like, you know, if I'm gonna get this picture, it's it was gonna it wasn't gonna I don't know. I'd have to find a costume uh or a look that I I, I think I could feel comfortable in, and maybe I would wanna put a little bit more effort into it. Uh I don't think I was just ready prepared for the level of commitment everyone else was throwing at this this hobby. I think that one finding something that you're comfortable in is the most important mm-hmm. thing, right? Like when I put on my 12th Doctor clothes, I, I, I feel good. I, I like the way they make me feel. I, and I agree with Phil. I think they're very smart. I think it's it's well put together. It's really nice. And then the other thing is, is that, like, it's become a huge thing now. Like, cosplay has so blown up over the past couple of years. People really are 
crazy about it and dedicated about it. But the other thing is I think people are really nice about it and, and people are just happy that anyone is dressing up because they like to dress up and someone else likes to dress up. So I, I think there's a lot of acceptance, um, uh, especially at Doctor Who conventions. So, um, you know, when you, I think it's when you do find something that you're comfortable with, you should, you know, try and stick it out. I had the I had a very similar experience. My first galley, I wasn't sure I wanted to wear my costume, and I was a little uh, self-conscious because I have a lot of social anxieties, and um, I'm, I'm a very shy person, but um, but I, I got over it just by pushing myself through, and I'm really glad that I did. So, um, you know, that would that would be the one thing. My, my advice to you is... Try and remember that the judgment is is in your own head, you know. The first time I, I don't, it was at Galley, actually, the first time I, I cosplayed. And I was very, very sort of self-conscious sort of walking into the into the lobby. And I'm there in my, in my 12th Doctor costume, and I thought, oh, you know. And I, I don't know why at that particular moment there wasn't too many other people cosplaying. Maybe it was just too early in the day or they were in a, in a, attending a panel or something. I, I, I don't know. So, but surely, sort of, sort of, some of the people I knew there kind of said, "Hey, oh, that that looks really cool." And I thought, "Okay, this isn't so bad." You know, I think it's once you, you got you, you get over that hurdle of feeling so self-conscious, and then once people sort of start, sort of saying, "Hey, you look great," you thought, "Okay, this is a okay." I'm feeling a bit more comfortable with it now, and and that was it. I just sort of settled into it. But the the, <laughs> the weird thing was when I went back, I think it was a couple of years later to Galley. I wasn't staying in the Marriott. I was down the road in the Hilton. And walking down the road, <laughs> dressed as the Twelve Doctor, was a different ball game altogether. <laughs> when you're not with your tribe, yeah. Exactly, exactly. But uh, but I've also done it. There was um, a Hooverville convention, um, which is in the UK, and I took my my Twelve costume there as well. And again, I had a bit of a walk from the hotel to where the convention was being. It was sort of, sort of cross like a market square, and I thought, oh god, I've got to walk out in public. Like this, and I thought, oh well, nobody cares. Nobody takes any notice of you. Nah, really. Um, okay, if you're dressed as six, as the sixth Doctor, it might be a different story. <laughs> but it's just so loud, isn't it? That one. But when you're dressed as twelve, it looks like everyday wear. No, no, I said nobody cared. But on the way back, um, when the convention was over, I walked back to the hotel with someone dressed as a TARDIS. <laughs> so you know. But again, nobody cares. No. So I think the the whole um, feeling a bit conspicuous is. Say it's, it's all in your own mind, yeah. really, because nobody really pays any attention. If they do pay attention, they say that looks really good. Speaking of of the sixth Doctor, uh, I think if I if I wanted to commit to another Doctor Who cosplay and, and really like put some effort into it, I think the sixth Doctor might be a really fun one to try, just because it is so different. But I would want to do the comic version where the whole costume is sort of a muted blue. Uh, so the patterns are very similar mm. um, in in some sense. I really yeah. like that one. I think it's a it's cool and it speaks to my love of comic books. And I think it's also conversational. Like you know, so like maybe there isn't going to be there might be one other person dressed like that, but uh, I, you know, I would definitely stand out uh, in that group. So that might be nice. I I sort of resemble Colin Baker, especially these days, both myself and Colin <laughs> Baker. Uh, and whether or not I would wear the Crocs with the outfit, I'm not 100% sure. But I did consider briefly dressing like um, Jodie Whittaker's doctor for the most recent convention I went to. Uh, but I just, I don't know. It, 
I, I didn't think I could get it together to do it justice. But part of the joy of that costume is like seeing so many people just, you know, like three days after the costume was shown, I was at a convention and everyone was had had an attempt and there's kind of that joy of being a part of that so i like that i like that community there's a thing i wanted to say when you said that you dressed as the war doctor to uh you know to go watch the episode and uh you, you hadn't you know you, you, you were like the only person there who had dressed as the war doctor and for doctor who conventions that's a badge of honor yeah. right like if you have yeah, if you've got a costume that hasn't even aired yet that's awesome, and and you're right. That did happen with uh, with Jody's doctor uh, as soon as the pictures came out. There's a there's a little bit of a uh, arms race when it comes to <laughs> um, when it comes to costuming, <laughs> where a, a picture comes out and people are immediately on it trying to replicate it. And I think that's why Phil, when you were saying you you haven't had out of luck. Uh, a lot of luck finding original pieces, and that's because as soon as things come out, they're either um, they were either purchased a year before you see the picture, uh, exactly, you know, yeah. or, <laughs> or everyone's bought them out as soon as the picture came out. So you got to re. There's a level of commitment to uh, being able to spend money at any moment when you want to really uh, uh, be on top of those things. That's the only reason I'm glad that Peter Capaldi is no longer the doctor because now I'm (laughs) I'm not spending money on new costumes. Uh, I can actually catch up. When Resolution Images came out, the the scarf for Resolution, uh, I think the company Mm -hmm. that had it sold out in in 24 hours. It had been sitting on their website forever, but as soon as they figured out, hey, you know, Here's that promotional image. This is the scarf that Jodie Whittaker is wearing. It's on this website, and suddenly it was no longer on that website. I have like you know of the five or six friends who do Jodie Whittaker cosplay. I think like one of them managed to get the scarf uh, from that initial one to wear at the next convention, whereas everybody else had to wait for them to decide to remake it or get a clone version of that from somewhere else. Paul Smith, uh, who made the the scarf and um, made uh, Matt Smith's first shirts and all of Peter Capaldi's trousers, it's a very um, uh, very famous uh, UK brand. Um, Paul Smith, sort of the the godfather of the the mod style. Um, and yes, so indeed, uh, and he's very good friends with Peter Capaldi. Uh, there's a, a whole thing there. So uh, that scarf, there wasn't that many of them left because they don't make that many of them to begin with. So, um, so it sold out quickly just because it, it was a past season and, uh, and there wasn't that many left. Um, but, uh, I, I was able to get one from Japan, uh, because they sell more, uh, a higher volume there for whatever reason. Um, but yeah, I mean, it's things like that or, uh, it's exactly it. I mean, it's a, the people, scoop it up i think that was the first place people probably looked for it was on the paul smith website because they know <laughs> that uh that ray uh, uh ray holman who is the costume designer uh currently um is a is a paul smith fan as well do you think there's any difference between uk and us cosplay because from my perspective there isn't at all, really, because I've, I've been to conventions in, in, in both countries and there's that same level of dedication and acceptance. Not anymore. It, it, I, I think 
it used to be cosplay was much bigger in the U.S. than it was in the U.K. Uh, it was, yeah. Um, and like I've said, now it's be- it. It's a strange thing because it really started with Japanese anime, right? Like that's where people yeah. really started doing all the cosplay. And then, I, I mean, growing up, there was people. Like I said, there was people in Star Trek uniforms at conventions. Every convention, comic book convention I ever went to, there was a Klingon. Um, and I, it was always like Spot the Klingon was one of my games that I would play. Uh, and then, um, <laughs> and then there was always one dude dressed as Tom Baker, and the Doctor Who cosplayers were like the lowest, <laughs> the the lowest on the totem pole of cosplayers. Uh, but the, I always appreciate that there was that one guy who came out in like his full Fourth Doctor costume with a scarf in the middle of summer, and more power to him, <laughs> right? Exactly, um, exactly. But now it's 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 blown up to an extent like. I, most of the the cosplayers that I interact with uh, online on Instagram or whatever are UK based. Oh right, okay. Um, yeah, I just it's, I mean, it, I guess because it is Doctor Who and Doctor Who is is more popular there than it is here mm. still to it to a certain extent um, because of the the cultural importance of the show. Um, but uh, yeah, I, I, I don't think there's any difference anymore. And I think that people really, I, I see more and more people in the UK just really putting forth the effort. And it's great to see. I mean, it's always great to see people passionate about anything, but the costumes are really great. And there's a couple of, um, uh, there's a, there's a quite a few uh, UK Doctor Who cosplayers who are really, really good at it. Really got good collections. Yeah, yeah. It's, it, it's. I think that's the thing. If you've, um, it's one of those things. You, you you can either spend a lot of money on it, or or not really. It's whatever you feel comfortable with. Mm-hmm. I think at the end of the day, and I think that I think the important thing. As long as you, you as long as you feel good wearing it, then that, I don't think anything else matters. To be honest, I agree. Yeah, yeah, completely. I mean, that's yeah. fashion in general. If you feel good wearing yeah. it, then. It, 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 Let's get not to get all like philosophical, uh, but uh, if <laughs> if you put on clothes that you feel good wearing and you go outside the house, people recognize that confidence is palpable. It's that sort of thing, and you get confidence by doing things that make you feel good internally and what feels feels good on you. And so, I I I hate getting my picture taken. Typically, I don't. It's not something I'm a huge fan of, and I'm very particular when it comes to photo shoots and things like that and so but i'll go out and and i'll do a photo shoot with my friends and i'll be in my costume and i'll be wary of it the whole time and i'll see the photos afterwards and i'm like wow you know i mean these look nice and and it's something um and that gives me that confidence and i i don't know i i just think feeling that and putting those things on and, and feeling good about it is is really all that matters have fun life is too short exactly Precisely. Do you know what? I think that, that's probably a, a good place to, to end this conversation, actually. So I think our advice to anyone who wants to wants to start cosplaying or do it again, Drew, um, is to say just to, just, to, just to have fun. Yes. Well, if I do the attempt anytime soon, and I, if it's for a convention, I know you gentlemen are going to be there. I'll let you know ahead of time, and you can uh, you can psych me up for it. We'll make sure we get a group cosplay picture. I'd be happy to make that happen. Yes, yes. that is a deal. That is a deal. Maybe we just all dress as Monoptera and really blow everyone's mind. <laughs> <laughs> well, th- 
thank you very much, everybody. That turned into a little bit of a serious conversation, didn't it, Phil? What it happened did. there? It did. The message we wanted to put across there, really, is sort of you don't have to spend an awful lot of money to cosplay. You just have fun. If you just throw a costume together and it looks you know, vaguely what you want it to look like, fine, just have fun with it. Mm. And it can yeah. be it can be very, very expensive cosplaying, as, as, I, as I know, um, because... Um, I'm a bit of a perfectionist when it comes to that. Not so much as, St- uh, as uh, Stephen is. Um, yeah, it doesn't sound like many people are as, um, let's say, dedicated uh, to, to, to their hobby as Stephen. Oh, yeah, Stephen takes it to, <laughs> it's an art form for Stephen, it really is. It's incredible, isn't it? It's it incredible. is. But, but this is one thing I wanted to ask you, and I, it wasn't mentioned in your discussion. Mm. Um, and again, I, I know nothing uh, about cosplay, which is part of the reason why I didn't really want to get involved in that conversation. But... I, I'm not particularly keen on acting or performing. Um, Ian and I went to uh, Secret Cinema years ago, um, The Empire Strikes Back, and, oh, right, yeah. which was an amazing event, absolutely amazing event. But the whole of the first couple of hours, you walked around, well, what was it? Was it Tatooine, wasn't it, Ian, more or less? That's right, yeah. yeah. And you had actors there. You were given a character in advance, and you basically cosplayed. And I'm, I'm waving my fingers in the air there, but... That was my understanding of cosplay. You basically inhabit a character. Now, that is so not me. It is unbelievable. I only just can carry me off successfully, take yourself out of reality. It is just not my thing at all. And I understood the difference between cosplaying and costuming or dressing up, essentially, is that you inhabit the character as well. Is, is that something you do, Phil, as well? Uh, no, th- what you just described there sounds more like audience participation, which yeah. is one of my personal levels of hell, oh. uh, t- t- to be honest. So, um, no, cosplaying for me, it's it's just getting dressed up as, for me, it's just my you know, it was my favourite Doctor, which happens to be a Capaldi. And I've also got a ninth Doctor costume, which I haven't actually worn in public yet. Um, mm. It was meant to be uh, debuted at Hooverville last year, but unfortunately I, I couldn't make it. So, uh, so it's still in the cupboard um, or wardrobe rather, sort of um, untouched. Mm. So I'm, ho- I'm hoping okay. to do that this year instead. But no, it's. I mean, you case you sort of find yourself when somebody asks, "Oh, can I take your photo or whatever?" Or you get into a group photo with other cosplayers. You do find yourself pulling a few um, poses <laughs> as, as, as best you can. Um, but that, for, for me, that's as far as it goes. But some people do take it very, very seriously. Mm, um, yeah. And for me, it's, I mean, they're constantly going to conventions all the time with, with different costumes. Um, and no, I, I just go to the occasional convention um, and sometimes I decide, okay, I'll take me, you know, maybe my 12th Doctor along or me or my um, ninth along. That's that's as far as it goes for me. So, so. so basically you're Phil in a costume? Basically, yes. Right. Not okay. unless I start wearing wigs. <laughs> <laughs> Fair enough. Um, you, you mentioned, actually, during the course of that discussion, that you thought walking in public dressed as the Sixth Doctor might potentially draw a little more attention uh, than you know some of the later Doctors. And it's interesting, actually, I have a friend uh, is is a listener of the show, another guy called Adam, actually, who, as I record, is at Big Finish Day <laughs> up in Derby, dressed as the Sixth Doctor. So I've asked him to actually record some of his experiences of, of being seen out in that colourful, colourful tablecloth of a, of a coat. And bearing in mind I am colourblind, um, um, I still find that costume offensive, so I'll, I'll be quite interested <laughs> to hear Adam's comments, and we'll, we'll play those to you in a in a, in a future podcast. Okay. 
So from talking about things that were so far in the past that James has forgotten them, we've now come more or less bang up to date with looking at the pilots, Bill Potts's intro episode for the 12th Doctor. Although I say that, James, you had actually forgotten this one as well, hadn't you? Completely. <laughs> Completely. And do you know what? This was only broadcast in April 2017. <laughs> so, doesn't say much at all for my short-term memory, really, does it? But, uh, but yeah, I, I've only seen season 10 once from what I can remember. I may possibly have seen the pilot more than once, but I've forgotten. <laughs> so I just wanted to have a chat, really, about some relatively newish Capaldi stuff with a pair of you, and particularly as, Phil, you've you've said a few times now that you're quite a big fan of this uh, this era of the show, and you've, you know, as we've just heard, you cosplayed as the, the 12th Doctor. And uh, Ian, as you've you've gone on record in the past to say that you think this era was where it all kind of started to decline. So your box can move. It can go anywhere it likes. Mmm. Good, isn't it? Anywhere at all in the whole university. Using my imagination, but it's just taking longer than normal. Hang The room's still inside the box. This isn't a knock through. No. Doctor. It's bigger on the inside than it is on the outside. Hey, we got there. I suppose I gave you both homework, which sounds terrible, really, because um, I haven't done it all myself. I I can't remember when we had this idea to review the pilot, but it must have been weeks ago. And I I definitely mentioned it to you, Phil, didn't I? Ages ago. You did, yes. And I and I watched it yesterday. <laughs> As well, did I, I attempted to yesterday, <laughs> and I fell asleep. Um, and unfortunately, I went out for a run this morning, um, and then I fell asleep again. I've watched virtually all of this, apart from the last five minutes, because I had to record with you two. <laughs> oh, okay. This is going to be a brief conversation. <laughs> <laughs> well, we're overrunning anyway. <laughs> What's new? But what did you think? <laughs> Uh, I mean, for all that I've, I've been making fun of you, James, I had basically forgotten this story. And, and I'm on record previously as saying I find a lot of the Capaldi era quite forgettable. Mm. When you told me to, that we were going to watch this, I had to actually go and Google it to remind myself which story we were talking about because it, it hadn't made that much of an impression. But watching it a second time, and it was a second time, it's fun. It mm. is fun. I think this is around the time when I think Stephen Moffat was getting just a little bit too wrapped up in the fan service and and his own ideas of where he wanted to take things. Um, there was an awful lot of nods to the classic series rattling around in this one, and I thought they 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 started to get a bit heavy handed. But it's a fun story. It's a fun introduction for Bill Potts, and actually my favourite bits were probably the interaction yeah. between Bill and the Doctor in the university. I, th- I actually thought the whole soggy girl plotline. Didn't didn't really excite me all that much. It didn't watch. Um, it, it never it was never really explained who and what she was or or why she was there or how she could teleport th- th- anywhere in space and time. And I don't know it, it, that plot line actually to me was probably the weakest part of the story. Well, I think it was explained later in the finale from from memory. I don't know why I've got recall on that, but uh, I've, I've probably forgotten that as well. Yeah, <laughs> but, but I do agree with you. Uh, incidentally, I, I I think this is um, I think the best parts for me were definitely in the university, uh, and I love the conversations that between the Doctor and Bill Potts. It was totally different to anything we've seen before with Clara. The lines were a lot shorter. It was even quicker quips uh, than we've been used to in the previous two series. And there's something about a doctor in a university. It just works. And 
I like it very much. I, I thought it was great. But Phil, sorry, go on. Auntie, what were your reactions? Well, no, no, I was going to say, because um, I'd like you, James, I haven't watched it since transmission. Hmm. You know, every time a new um, box set comes out for, for each series, I, I get it, or, or someone gets it from for my birthday or Christmas or something. I actually had to crack open the cellophane on this box set. <laughs> I, it's been That's so, terrible. You're yeah, bad I know. Fan. I know. I'd forgotten what absolutely fantastic character Bill Potts is. Yeah, and I just sort of fell in love with the character all over again because uh, I remember watching it at the time. I thought I'd, I'd love Bill Potts. I think she's absolutely brilliant, and I think Pearl mm. Mackey's brilliant. Potts. Yeah. Bill Potts. You wanted to see me. Uh, you're not a student at this university. No, I work in the canteen. Yeah, but you come to my lectures. No, I don't. Well, I never do that. I've seen you. Love your lectures. They're totally awesome. I also agree about the fact that putting Capaldi's Doctor in the university just works on so many different levels. <laughs> and I think this is the kind of companion he should have had rather than Clara. I think there's yeah. a lot of people who love Clara, um, but I think she did outstay her welcome. And I would have quite happily had a couple of seasons of Bill rather than just the one. Yeah, I agree entirely. And I think Capaldi's character had notably changed since, um, well, since the Clara era. And I do think Clara went on too too long. Um, I think the original concept of the Impossible Girl was fantastic, but mm. I, I couldn't I couldn't agree with you more really I, I i think bill potts is real and i think this is a particularly strong episode for bill i think she lost some of her definition later on this series but the pilot itself which is obviously all about her in the same way i suppose rose was all about rose yeah you just kind of get reintroduced to the doctor through the companion's eyes it just worked so well and uh, you know whether this dialogue just zips off moffat's pen or keyboards really really easily or whether he has to put effort into making it this kind of real i don't know but it's it's really effective and I, I think that's one thing, even with Nardal, where the Doctor has very different kind of conversations to the ones that he has with uh, with Bill, are uh, all enthralling. And I, I, again, right up until the last five minutes that I've yet to see, which I will watch as soon as I finish this recording with you two, <laughs> um, my interest was maintained and I, I really enjoyed it. The, the biggest problem I had with Capaldi's era was the affectation for the first series or so, that he was this grumpy, curmudgeonly, you know, anti-charismatic character which was a throwback to the first doctor and as soon as i saw him pull his lapels in the announcement i thought oh no they're not going to do that again because that's what they did with colin and that's why colin didn't work either um and in this in your opinion i still think colin worked uh, <laughs> it, 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 i think the first in, doctor in, worked as well <laughs> I, I, I i think in the modern audience it doesn't work to have the, your main protagonist be someone that the, the audience doesn't like and that's the that's where Colin went, and that's where early Capaldi went as well. But in this story, I thought actually he was a fun, he was a much more charismatic character. He was fun. He was self-deprecating. There were some good jokes going. There was some good banter going. Nardle helps with that as well. Yeah, he does. And actually, yeah. he, he's a doctor that you could really warm to. Uh, and in fact, seeing his excitement as he was trying to, uh, you know, do the, the the classic, it's bigger on the inside than the outside <laughs> routine with Bill. That was all really fun. It was. And again, yeah. the, the, the first season 
uh, Capaldi Doctor was much more arrogant and much more aloof and just wasn't fun to watch. This was a really fun performance to watch. I, I agree. I mean, it, it looks as though the Doctor is enjoying himself and he hasn't changed that much in the same way that Colin Baker's Doctor in season 23 hadn't changed that much in terms of the lines that he was given from the previous season. It's just the way he said it. You know, he changed and softened his approach a lot. And he, the, the wit and the cutting remarks are still there. But they're not said in a way that makes the audience think what on earth is going on or in reality would make someone who was talking to him just want to turn around and walk in the opposite direction. Mm. Going back to what you said earlier in about that the, there's a bit too much fan service um, in this particular season and particularly in the, before you even see the Doctor, the amount of fan service just sitting on his desk in his study with all the sonic what, screwdriver. River Song. River Song and, and Susan yeah. and, and things like that. But do you know what? I I really don't, mind that to be honest um nor do I, I yeah i think it was just if you understood it you understood it. if you if you didn't it's just oh what you know new fans would know that's river song they might not know who susan is they wouldn't know what the abasonic screwdrivers were or who they be, which docks they belong to either but um i didn't care i i loved it absolutely loved it i agree yeah i, when, agree. I, 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 don't I, I was say when i saw that recreated at the doc 2 exhibition in cardiff i i spent a lot of time looking to see if i could spot anything else on the desk as well um, oh, I didn't see that. You must have visited that exhibition um, just long before, after I did. It was then. just before it closed. Oh. It was about a month before it closed. I, I went there. Um, and how true a representation was it? Was it just lifted from the set? Do you think it looks like it was? Yeah, I mean they had the uh, Movellan costumes there oh, as well wow. um, from from yeah. from the pilot. So, um, and when you saw them close up, they thought, yeah, that's straight out of Destiny of the Daleks. It was almost <laughs> identical. It was. <laughs> Uh, See, funny enough, I think the Mavellans were fine because it was a total throwaway. It was a total aside. Yep. As a classic fan, you go, hey, I know who those guys are. And it, it means something. But if you weren't a classic era fan, it was just, here's someone fighting. And it didn't mean anything. And I, mm. I, I think that's what I, I don't, I have no problem at all with little nods here and there. It's when it starts to get a bit laboured. And I thought the photos on the desk, they kept coming back to it. And and he, he ended up, I think, talking to the pictures. or the, And it, it's drawing the, uh, the viewer's attention into it and making it significant to this story. And that's where I think it starts to become problematic. Because if you don't know who Susan is, then you're going, well, what's all this about? And, and it doesn't mean anything to you. Because I think the throwaway ones, I mean, even going right back to, Dalek in the, the the first Eccleston season when you see that the Cyberman's head in the case, brilliant. We loved that at the time. It was great fun, but it didn't. You, you could know nothing about it, and it didn't in any way hamper your enjoyment of the story. Mm, yeah, I, I, I don't think um, this was any more in your face than some of the others. I think there was it was it was a few more different props used uh, and a few more different callbacks, and like you say, it made its way into dialogue this time too. But for me, again, and I don't really care about. The general audience, frankly, I've long since <laughs> gone past caring what kids think, what anybody else thinks. This is my show, and I only care what I think. And I, you I, really I, are I, a grumpy old man, aren't you? Yeah, well, I'm, I'm a grumpy old man recording with Waldorf and Statler. How about that? <laughs> <laughs> but, but in all honesty, I love it, and I thought it was really good, and I found myself smiling to myself again in a way that I haven't for for some time in watching modern Doctor Who just because uh, I got it and <laughs> other people probably wouldn't <laughs> I, I think a collection of sonic screwdrivers is not a big deal no I liked it I liked it well I, I actually I actually think the Susan inclusion um, that, well, <laughs> that's an episode title in itself <laughs> exactly the Susan inclusion 
Um, I'm pretty sure that was just there for Capaldi's benefit. Um, same as the yeah. when we get to the end of the series with the Mondasian mm. Cybermen as well. There was a clip of Capaldi on YouTube. He was he was talking to a group of children, like a Q and A session, and he was talking about. Uh, I think someone asked him who would he like to see return to the to the show, and he said Susan. But he flipped into being the Doctor at that moment, talking about his granddaughter. Uh, like uh, Hartnell used to. Yeah, and it was mm, it was amazing. These kids were absolutely enraptured by what he was saying, but Capaldi was getting upset when he was talking about it. Oh dear. So um, I think that that, that that photo there was definitely just for him, and, no, and nothing yeah, else. I yeah. think it was it wasn't meant to go in anywhere with it. You know, it's just meant to be. I think it's Capaldi's last season. Let's put a picture of Susan on his desk. You know, that story makes me like its inclusion even more. There you are. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, I think that's it's it's a wonderful thing. Um, one of the things that may potentially have been a callback, we'll probably both deride this. Um, Okay, we're in an educational establishment of which many doctors uh, have been in. You know, David Tennant was in a secondary school. You've got the fourth doctor, I suppose, revisiting or visiting Cambridge University in Sharda. There's lots of lots of examples. And of course, the seventh doctor, Coal Hill School, noticed the deposits from a spaceship uh, within school grounds. Now, didn't that scene feel a little bit like when McCoy and Ace or the seventh doctor and Ace looked out the window? and saw the Dalek ship's uh, imprints of where it had landed. I, I know what you mean, and yes, there's obviously some similarities, but I didn't, it didn't feel to me like it was a deliberate callback. It just, I thought, felt that they, were, they happened to be using the same story beats. Do, do you know what? It didn't occur to me at all, actually, so I think you two need to get out more. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> well, that, that is undeniably true. <laughs> but uh, but I, I, I just... I don't know, I, I pull stuff out of everything now, which of course um, other fans deride. <laughs> they kind of feel <laughs> superior. Oh, not everything is a callback, you know. But I think a lot of this stuff is, because I think people who, who, who make this show, particularly up until recently, or certainly Moffat's and RTD's era, was, it was such a, such a part of their childhood, you know, and you had RTD, even now still mentions the Taran wood beast you know whenever he gets an opportunity and people understand <laughs> it and they like it and they laugh at it and then they go oh okay that's then and this is now but uh, but yes this episode for me I have to say I enjoyed it much much more than I, I thought I was going to I think it's really worth revisiting uh, after well even just a couple of years um, watching it in isolation you know when a doctor when, when doctor who is not on a screen uh, regularly each week it kind of feels different and it it just you you can kind of watch it at a more leisurely pace, and uh, I, I I can see and appreciate what they're doing with the vault, the mystery in the vault, which of course we didn't really know um, what it was going to be when we saw it in this episode for the first time, and yet there was still a sense of tiredness because we were thinking, well, God, what what's what's the bad wolf going to be this time around? And yeah. when you're free of all of that it actually works pretty well in its own right. And I found myself being intrigued, even though obviously I know who's inside the vault. Yeah, I've mentioned I was watching it with my children and they were completely... Because I now knew what was in the you know, in the vault. But um, mm. despite the fact I think they have actually... Well, my son certainly watched it before on transmission, um, but obviously he's forgotten all about it. So he was, what's in there, Daddy? So mm. it piqued his interest. I mean, the, the, the soggy girl... 
scared scared the pair of them. We can't keep calling her the soggy girl. Honestly. Heather then, soggy Heather. There you are, <laughs> soggy Heather. Um, now that's, that's that sounds like I'm just walking through a field in Scotland now, actually. But <laughs> <laughs> um, but yeah, but that scared them. So I think there was a lot in this episode to please this old fan here with all the little nods to the, to the past. They like the scary monsters. They like the mystery of the vault. Um, I like the performances. I think there's one hell of a lot to like in this episode. I really do. Agreed. I, I really liked the visits to Australia and the alien planet as well. And again, that was just a way of showing new viewers, hey, look, this this machine goes in time and space as well. And of course, Bill finds that out at the same time. I, I, I just think it really worked. But uh, yeah, thumb, thumbs up, certainly, it sounds like, from all three of us. Yes, indeed. Yep, definitely. Wow, how about that? <laughs> wraps up Doctor Who Podcast episode number 295. We'd love to hear from you out there, so you can find us at our, our usual email address, which I've remembered, everybody, I've remembered, Wee-hee. is feedback at the com. You can also tweet us at the DW Who Podcast, and you can also find us on Facebook as well, so please do get writing. Uh, also, if you want to, you can send us audio feedback if you'd like to listen as well. So there we are. I'm not very good at listening. (laughs) (laughs) Coming up in episode 296, Ian. Yes. (laughs) (laughs) Ian is going to be introducing the first of a new feature that is going to run over the next year or so called Nine Lives. Do you want to say anything about that, Ian? Yes, we're going to do a retrospective on the Christopher Eccleston era, which I think has generally been a bit overlooked, you know, because David Tennant's such a big thing and obviously the classic era is such a big thing. I think Mr Eccleston has been a little bit lost in there and frankly, all of our modern TV, we have to owe to him. So yes, we can have a good long look at that and go through Mm. all the episodes one by one uh, with various members of the team and hopefully have some fun. And Phil, you're going to be back with Adam at the BFI once again with Daleks and planets and things. Yes, indeed. Yes. We were both at the, as I said earlier, actually, at the BFI for the um, showing of Planet of the Daleks. We'll be discussing that and what went on uh, during the course of the afternoon. It was a long afternoon as well. <laughs> All that and more in the next episode of the Doctor Who podcast. Phil, Ian, it's been a pleasure. And of course, the biggest thank you to you, the listeners, for making it this far. We'll speak to you again very soon. Bye for now. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Forever reversing the polarity of the neutron flow. So you don't have to. That was a noble crew of the Doctor Who podcast. Episode 295. Help them make it to 300 and beyond with your continued support because they need something to do especially on Wednesdays. This noble crew of which I speak, they all have first names. These names are most certainly James, Phil, Ian, Michelle, 
Stephen, and even Drew. You can get in touch via your electronic mailing system by contacting them using feedback at the Doctor Who Podcast. They are social creatures too, especially in the social media arena. The Twitter account is at the Doctor Who Podcast. That's at the DR Who Podcast. They're also on Facebook. There is a huge back catalogue available on iTunes or at the Doctor Who Podcast.com. Nearly 300 episodes, for goodness sake. Look out for the next episode, where there will be some Doctor Who content on this... The Doctor Who Podcast. I hope you felt most welcome. Ahead of release, but um, I'm I'm pleased they did one because it filled the void, yes. and obviously there's there's apart from the blue la- bru- sorry, apart from the blue la- I can't play blue la- blue lay blue play play <laughs> teeth back in James blue <laughs> Not only can I not remember it, I film can't speak. Um, right. Um, apart from the blue ra- I can't. <laughs> <laughs> Blu-ray. Blu-ray releases. Blu-ray releases. Blu-ray releases. Right. <laughs> Apart from the Blu-ray releases, we uh, kind of, you know, now now, I can't, now I've said it, I can't remember what I was going to say. <laughs> this, is, this, is, this is becoming far too uh, normal. Right. The podcast is going great until Michelle just started screaming <laughs> like she does. <laughs> yeah, well. <laughs> How would you describe okay. loud? <laughs> So noisy. So stop screaming. <laughs> I will edit then, us so that we are pleasing to listen to. So it's okay. just gonna be me talking for now. Uh, <laughs> ah, with wait. just you, with just you looping that growl. <laughs> what did you think, Michelle? <laughs> <laughs> and the characterization. <laughs> <laughs> Right, what we got now? Um, oh yes, Ian, do you want to take us into cosplay then? That's um, that's more Phil, um, Stephen, and Drew again. These poor listeners. <laughs> <laughs> more. Hashtag more Phil. <laughs> <laughs>